Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Your ancestors went far from me after worthless things and became worthless themselves. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of drought and deep darkness? I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. This is the word of the Lord. Rabbi Gunter Plaut says Jeremiah was born in the year 645 before the Common Era. When he was only 18 years of age, he marched into the city of Jerusalem and started criticizing King Josiah and his court. You have to know that by that time, it had been 95 years since the northern tribes had been decimated. The Assyrians had marched south raping, plundering, burning, and then deporting all of the Jews who lived in the ten northern tribes. They were so intermarried that they ceased to be a separate people. And now, 95 years later, the southern tribes, Judah, with its capital city of Jerusalem, is in equal danger. The Assyrians have given way to an even stronger power, the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq. At 18, Jeremiah begins to rant and rave about the abuses of his people. He was effective, we think, because five years later, King Josiah attempted meaningful reform, a reform that lasted for the next nine years until suddenly the Egyptians came sprinting up the Via Mara, that way of the sea right along the Mediterranean. Josiah and his troops moved out to meet them at a little place called Megiddo. There was a horrible battle, and Josiah was killed. The one who succeeded him was worse than the one before him. And surely enough, when Jeremiah had been prophesying for 40 years, from the time he was 18 until he was 58, the Babylonians laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. The next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the most important things Jeremiah had to say. Let's look at today's text. Number one, you were my holy people, the first fruits of my harvest. We've been dealing with this chosen family, with Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac and Rebekah and those who followed them. God chose them, set them apart. That's what the word holy means, remember. Set them apart to be a witness to everyone else on the planet that there is only one God. And what this God expects from us, what we can expect from this one God. Called, called, and set apart. Two weeks from today will be 9-11. I'll be telling you next Sunday how you and I can participate that Sunday afternoon at the BOK Arena our former mayor, Susan Savage, who was our mayor 10 years ago when 9-11 occurred, is going to be the speaker. About a dozen of us have been asked to say a 30-second prayer each, and I will do my part on that. I'll tell you more about that next Sunday. But we're going to be reading a lot more about those events of 9-11 as we get nearer two weeks from today. Dina Bailey has recently written about her husband, Tom, who was on that fateful flight 93. 
Dina Bailey now lives in Little Rock, Arkansas, but she and Tom were living in Southern California at the time of 9-11-2001. He was a, a, a pharmaceutical rep for a medical devices company. He had to travel quite a bit in his job, and he had gotten onto Flight 93 that morning. Uh, he called his wife and said, we've been hijacked. Uh, this is not going to end well. The plane has suddenly turned 180 degrees. We're going in a different direction, and some of us have decided we've got to do the best we can to regain control of the plane. That was the one that crashed into a field in Pennsylvania, the one that many believe was headed for the Capitol or perhaps the White House in Washington, D.C., but Dina has written that something happened to her husband a year before that event. She said Tom had grown up a very active Roman Catholic Christian. She had grown up in a Baptist church. She said after we were married and had our first baby, he really tried hard going to the Baptist church with me. It didn't feed him. And so I agreed to give his church a try. And the more I went to the Roman Catholic church, the more I was fed by those prayers by the liturgy, by the service of Holy Communion every time they gathered. But a year before 9-11, she said, one night when Tom got home, he said, I've been doing something different every day at noon. And she asked, what is that? And he said, I've been going to Mass. Now, we were going to Mass every Sunday, she said. So I asked, oh, why are you doing that? And he said, something is drawing me to the church. I can't tell you what that is, but I'm convinced that I'm being drawn to the Mass every day at noon. There is a church, he said, just a few blocks from my office. I slip down there just before noon. I'm a part of the noon Mass. I get back to work. And so she said, he went Monday through Friday. And we went to our own parish on Sunday for that whole next year. So when he called me and said, we've been hijacked, we're going to try to regain control of the plane, I felt Tom had been called to do something special, something really special, and that God was getting him ready to be ready for that moment. A holy people set apart, called to do something significant, Number two, Jeremiah says, but your ancestors went after worthless things and they became worthless themselves. This word translated worthless here is a very special word in Hebrew. We probably have it more in the book of Ecclesiastes than any other. In Hebrew, it's pronounced something like chebel, chebel. You and I would spell it H-E-B-E-L. In Ecclesiastes, the writer says, I have looked everywhere under the sun. There is nothing new. All is chebel. Vanity, the old King James Version said. Vanity, those who translated the King James Version 400 years ago knew that this word vanity for us comes from the same root as the word vacuum. And some of the translators I read this week call it emptiness. Emptiness. They sought after emptiness and they became empty. The rabbis translated worthlessness and they became worthless. 
I thought about what we're doing here now. It's called worship, coming from the old English, worthship, worthship, trying to express what has the greatest worth in our lives. In the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, there was a long article written by the chief rabbi of Great Britain, Jonathan Sachs. I've read Rabbi Sachs before. He's a very articulate man. This time he was writing that hardly seems possible. Four months ago, the whole world was focused on London as Prince William and his chosen rode through the streets of the city to their wedding. Everybody seemed to be so pleased that William and Catherine were beginning so very well. It was a bright new day for all of us in London and in Great Britain. We didn't dream that four months later the world would be focused on us again. But this time it was because hooligans were running through our streets. They were breaking into businesses. They were carrying off everything they could hold in their hands and arms. We had four people who were killed. We had houses and automobiles set on fire. We now know more about those who were doing this, he said. Sixty percent of them had a criminal record. Twenty-five percent of them were members of gangs. But I don't think it's that simple, he said. I believe something happened to Great Britain in the 1960s. And the same thing happened in the United States, he said. The Beatles sang, all you need is love, but what they really meant was, love whomever is willing and don't make any commitments. If you want to read some of their autobiographies, you'll see how many of our daughters and granddaughters lined up outside their performing halls to spend a night with a Beatle or any other rock and roll group that came down the pike. It was love of one sort, without responsibility, it seemed, without discipline, Rabbi Sachs said, in the 1960s, people in Great Britain quit going to church, and they quit going to the synagogues. Oh, that great generation of World War II, they had the strength, and they still remembered from whence that strength came. But the new generation, ah, they knew it all, they thought. And so they quit going to church, and they quit going to synagogue. And we, he said, the Judeo-Christian group, or they who've taught the world, you have to delay gratification. You have to keep these appetites of yours in check. God has given you all these wonderful appetites, but you have to learn how to keep them in check. And it's in our churches and in our synagogues that we learn to do that. And if we don't go, then we don't learn how to do that. We chase after worthless things, and we become worthless. Number three, did anybody ever ask, where is the God who brought us out of Egypt, who led us through a dry place and through deep darkness? This word translated deep darkness is the word we have in Psalm 23 that the King James scholars translated, yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I fear no evil. Newer translations say, valleys dark as death. Dr. Kroll prayed about times that all of us have known when we've been in that darkest valley. I told you when I was at Centenary College, because it's a wonderful little liberal arts Methodist college, they make you take all these things that are supposed to make you a better citizen. I had to take art appreciation when I didn't appreciate art, but I came to appreciate art 
There's nothing more that Gail and I love nowadays than walking through some of the greatest museums of the world. Wow, how many wonderful paintings we've seen. Recently, I was reminded of one of the Impressionists, one of those I like better than most other Impressionists. name was Camille Pissarro. Camille Pissarro is French, had French parents. He was born in the Caribbean, of all places, 1830, but made his way to Paris as a young adult and met a lot of other painters and found his own way, his own style. But unless you've had a course, you may not know that those French parents of his were also Sephardic Jews who raised this little boy of theirs at the synagogue on Friday nights. And Camille Pissarro never forgot that. If you look at his paintings, and Gail and I have seen some of his work at the Prado in Madrid, and we've seen others at the Louvre in Paris, and just last year, if you cross the river, they have a magnificent uh, museum in Paris now of expressionist work, impressionist work, and Pissarro is there as well. Uh, he's at the Guggenheim in New York as well, some of his work there. If you look at his paintings, there's just a few things he emphasized. One was the dignity of labor. Remember, he's painting in the early 18, or 1800s. He lived to be 73 years old, but he painted women who in his lifetime were usually doing housework. They were looking after babies, little children. Uh, they were milking cows. They were feeding chickens, gathering eggs, baking bread. And always there's a dignity to work. The fathers, most of whom had menial jobs, and he always painted them as having a real dignity to what they were doing. Their work meant something. It meant something. But he was a Jew, and after six days of hard work, what is a good Jew supposed to do? Observe Sabbath. And so he has a number of paintings that are about how wonderful leisure is, those times when you were recreated before you have to go back to work, recreated. But Camille Pissarro also knew that dark valley. One of his favorite subjects was a little daughter. He painted her often. If you look at his work, you can see her at different ages. She was always a little bit sickly. He painted her cheeks rosy and, and very much alive. But at 11, she got even sicker and she died. He has a number of paintings that last year when there was nothing, nothing they knew to do to save her life, and she died. Uh, one of my favorite paintings of his is a self-portrait just a few weeks before he died. He was 73, glasses, white shock of hair, a black suit, a soft black hat. But you look in through the glasses and you see warmth and compassion. If you look past him through the window, you see the beloved Paris that had come to mean so much to him. It's been a long way down that road, 73 years. But he knows that one who freed his people from Egypt, who parted the waters of the sea, who led them through a dry place, even in times of deep darkness. Number four, with these prophets, you have to look hard to find some good news sometimes. But here it is. I brought you into a fruitful place so that you might eat 
and live and enjoy. This fruitful land is actually translating in Hebrew, Carmel land. When one stands on top of Mount Carmel in Israel, if you look westward, you can see the Mediterranean on a clear day. And if you look eastward, you're looking right down the Jezreel Valley, the river that doesn't flow to the Mediterranean. It flows to the Jordan River. How green, how lush it is. In fact, Carmel comes from the Hebrew word kerem, which means vineyard. This is the vineyard land, that land of milk and honey, of wine and cheese, the good place God has given you. Forrest Carroll has written about the 1930s in North Carolina. Some of you who are familiar with the Cherokee Indians know that there are still Cherokees who live in North Carolina. Mr. Carroll was a part of them, so he's written autobiographically about the Great Depression among the Cherokees in the Smoky Mountains in the 1930s. He said there was a Jewish peddler, a Mr. Vine, who came through their little community every few weeks. He sold needles and thread. If a family had enough to order material, he had little swatches of cloth, and on his next trip through, he would bring the fabric that someone had ordered. But he was calling on one of these families late one evening, when he saw a little boy come in from school, he'd had on no coat. He said Mr. Vine knew immediately he didn't have on a coat because he had no coat. He looked at this little boy. He had measured lots of little boys before. He jotted down without anyone seeing what he believed that child's measurements would be. He took the order for a couple of needles and a spool of thread, moved on to the next house, but he didn't forget. When he got home, he made a beautiful little yellow jacket for this child. Now, how does he give it to him? He knows these are a proud people, a very proud people. And so when he got to this house and was talking with the lady about needles and thread, he suddenly saw this little boy in Cherokee called Little Tree. And he said, Little Tree, I have a terrible problem. I have a grandson who lives in another state and I made him a jacket, but he had grown before I got it finished. And here I am, having to carry this jacket around day after day after day. Is there any chance you would take this jacket from me so I don't have to carry it again tomorrow? And he took it out, held it up. This little fellow stuck out his arms. It fit him perfectly. And Mr. Vine said, Thank you, thank you. You've made my day. And he moved on to the next house. Little Tree wore his yellow jacket to supper that night, but he was very careful to lean way over his bowl of soup. Wouldn't have gotten anything on that yellow jacket for the world. To know there is someone who wants only good for you. 